Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The nation is closely watching the destructive advance of Hurricane Florence in the southeastern United States. Among the casualties, that region's farm crops. They're still in the field, and they may play a part in fluctuating commodity prices for those crops grown here in California. Driving through the Sacramento Valley, you may have noticed nut orchards popping up in what used to be rice fields. And that has rice growers worried for a number of reasons. We talk with the Calusa County rice grower about those impacts. We update agricultural tariff worries, the farm bill progress, and the latest crop reports. It's all on this week's edition of the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. are on the spread of Hurricane Florence into the southeastern United States. It's spreading heavy rain and strong winds into the Carolinas, and it's going to be on an agonizing crawl through the southeast into the early part of this week, producing catastrophic inland rainfall flooding, life-threatening storm surge, and destructive winds, and also destruction to a lot of agricultural crops, which could impact prices for a lot of California commodities. The USDA's Stephanie Ho has the details. As Hurricane Florence threatens the United States, USDA meteorologist Mark Bresberg has a relevant reminder. This is hurricane season. September is the big month, and we really have to respect just about everything that forms out there this time of year. For the ag sector, hurricanes can wreak havoc on crops. One case in point is Gordon, which was almost a hurricane when it hit the southeastern United States last week near the border with Mississippi and Alabama. Just barely missing being a hurricane. It was sustained winds of about 70 miles an hour. We had thought that it may become a hurricane before landfall. It didn't quite make it. Gordon had indeed weakened in strength, but it was still strong enough to threaten southern crops like cotton. Those areas with more than half of the bowls open are going to get soaked. There is going to be some wind with that too. So we're concerned that there may actually be some loss of bowls sodden with rain and then getting blown off by gusty winds. Another crop of concern? Rice. Arkansas, the largest producer, had harvested about 20% of their rice crop as of September 2nd, which meant that a lot of the crop was still standing. Rice is predominantly grown in the counties closest to the Mississippi River, so it's the eastern part of the state. Which was in the path of Gordon, which dropped four to eight inches of rain. The concern with the standing rice is whether or not it could be lodged. If it's very wet and windy, it could get knocked down. Some of it can be recovered possibly, some may not. Other recent hurricanes have done their share of agricultural damage. Len Wells with University of Georgia Extension talks about how Hurricane Irma devastated the state's pecans. I think every orchard in the state has damage. Every orchard pretty much has a lot of limbs down and a lot of nuts blown off the trees. Most orchards have a few trees down at least. USDA Chief Economist Rob Johansson adds that Irma also hit Florida's citrus industry. Irma rolled through and took a lot of a lot of the fruit off the trees. Damage is always expected, but it's only after the storm is over that people can get out to the fields to assess the full extent of losses. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. As the certainty of Hurricane Florence taking aim at the Carolina coastline grows, so do concerns about potential ag impacts. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey notes a previous example of how heavy rains and flooding could affect North 
North Carolina's hog industry. We have about one-eighth of the U.S. hog and pig production area in the path of the storm. We did see a disaster unfold just 22 years ago with Hurricane Floyd when we saw more than 20 inches of rain causing extensive mortality of hogs and pigs. Meanwhile, Carolina corn growers are scrambling to harvest remaining ripe crops prior to Florence's arrival. As for other crops in the ground, such as soybeans, cotton, and peanuts, not yet ready for harvest, they will have to be left out there at the mercy of the storm, highly susceptible to the winds and the potential flooding. At Rippey adds, there is also potential hurricane-related infrastructure damage and power outages that could hamper farm operations for a prolonged period. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Once again, an emergency is forcing people and pets to evacuate. This weekend, it's for Hurricane Florence. But who knows, the next one could be a wildfire in California affecting your home and family. Ann McCann is the head of emergency animal care programs for the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. She says that if you have to leave your home due to the effects of an emergency, you should prepare a go kit for your pets. If you don't already have a go kit prepared for yourself and your, your pets, prepare one now so you're ready to go quickly if the situation changes. You can go to www.ready.gov for items that should be included in your go kit. Critical things include your pet's food, medicines, vaccine records, and a crate or, or appropriate containment for the animal you want to take with you. At the website ready.gov, other items to put in your pet go kit in case of an emergency evacuation include pet litter and a litter box, newspapers, paper towel, plastic trash bags, household chlorine bleach, and familiar items such as toys and bedding that can help reduce stress for your pet. And one thing you may not think of, a picture of you and your pet together. If you become separated, a picture of you and your pet together will help document ownership and allow others to assist you. When it comes to crafting a good ag trade relationship with China. We've got an enormous amount of work to do there. Chief U.S. Ag Trade Negotiator Greg Dowd told a Senate Ag Committee hearing this week. This is the issue of our time in agriculture is, is to work to build and, and get that relationship with China where it needs to be because there are so many problems. And Agriculture Department Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney told the hearing there are things going on behind the scenes with China. And just yesterday, Greg and I co-hosted Vice Minister Han Jun, who is the lead ag negotiator from China. I would like to say that I think once we can renegotiate, whatever the time that is, I think ag can pick up where it left off and pick up and go. And that's what we're looking to do whenever that time is right. But Greg Dowd said it could take quite a lot of time and work. But the benefit if we make progress and get issues resolved is enormous. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The rice harvest is in full speed in the Sacramento Valley. Jim Morris of the California Rice Commission talks about how it's going. I think things are looking great. Uh, we started harvest in early September. The conditions are really good. Uh, the early reports are very good yields from the fields. We will continue harvest into November, most likely, and so far, so good. Things are looking great out there. Last year was a challenge to yields because it was excessively hot for long periods of time. Rice likes warm conditions, but triple-digit conditions day in and day out for a long period of time is not the best scenario. The good news is this year the, the acreage is up. USDA estimates 483,000 acres, which is up 9%. We actually think the acreage could be higher than that. 
and yields are expected to be up about 11% from last year. So that should bode well for rice farmers to have a good amount of rice uh, that will be entering the marketplace, and it also should be very good news for consumers. The 2018 harvest for California rice may look good, but will there be foreign markets to sell the rice to? Jim Morris of the California Rice Commission says tariffs do play a factor in determining the marketing of California rice. Our two key areas of concern are the European Union and Turkey. There are some existing tariffs and some retaliatory duties. It's very difficult to get our rice into those markets at the current time. The European Union is an important market for California rice. Turkey, in particular, is one of our top markets. And right now, those duties are so high that we're really not getting much product in there. We're hoping for some improvement in that situation. What are the top export markets currently for California rice? Japan is the number one market for California rice, and we're expecting a solid year there. It's been a solid market for us for several years. There are other um, markets in Asia that are important to us, Korea, for example. And then you're also going to look at uh, places like Turkey that are very high up in how much rice they take from California. We ship California rice to more than 100 countries worldwide. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare County, cotton bloomed, bulls were set, alfalfa was cut and baled, corn and sorghum were harvested for silage. In the Sacramento Valley, rice is progressing well and was near harvest. Alfalfa was cut and baled and the corn was harvested for silage. Sunflower harvest is ongoing in Sutter County. Grape vineyards are being irrigated. Table grape harvest is ongoing. Raisin grapes were harvested and laid out for sun drying. Some early wine grapes were harvested. Peaches, nectarines, pears, plums, and pomegranates were harvested. Stone fruit orchards were sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards continues. Some old orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. The persimmon fruit is showing some color. Olives are maturing well. Lemons and limes are being harvested. Valencia orange harvest continues, but light volumes. Citrus groves are being skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Navel orange fruit thinning is ongoing. Pushed out citrus groves are being prepped for planting, and some of them were planted. The melon harvest has hit full stride in the Central Valley. Farmers say harvests of cantaloupes, honeydews, and other melons began earlier this year. They say warm weather at the start of the season stimulated high sugar content in the melons, as well as strong yields. California leads the nation in cantaloupe production, but farmers say development of new varieties in southeastern states has brought new competition for California's melons. Over in the orchards, almonds, walnuts, and pistachio irrigation continues. Orchard floors were prepared for harvest. Almonds and pistachio harvesting was progressing well. Some walnuts were harvested in Tulare County. Brassica and lettuce continues to be harvested in Monterey County. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes were still being harvested in Tulare County. In the Sacramento Valley, processing tomatoes continue to be harvested. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was mostly in poor condition. Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the deficient nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. So describe to me where we're standing right now. 
We are standing at the Cane Ranch, just southwest of Maxwell, south of Fairview Road, uh, in between a couple of our rice fields. And how long have these fields been planted to rice even before we farmed them, as far as you know? Oh, wow. As far as I know, it's been at least the last 25 or 30 years. I think there was a period of time where they were row crops, but... But for as long as I can remember, they've been in rice. And let's talk a little bit about the grounds surrounding us here, because we've historically been surrounded by rice, but that has changed very gradually over the last few years. What has been going on? Yeah, the first changes that we saw were were a little ways to the north of us. Some walnuts got put in, um, and then just in the last few years, the rice fields directly to the west of us transitioned into some row crops, some tomatoes, sunflowers, things on drip tape, and now uh, about half of that field is planted to almonds, and it looks like the rest of it will be planted to almonds this coming winter. Um, and then, you know, looking to the, the south, we've got a field that is still rice and will be rice next year, but it recently changed hands and the plans are in the next couple of years that it too will be going into trees of some sort. So we're going to have trees to the south, trees to the west, and trees to the north all within the next couple of years. What's that going to do for our rice fields here? Well, you know, it makes it almost impossible to to be able to get in here and spray some of the critical herbicides that, that we need to farm this rice to keep water grass and sedge under control, particularly water grass. Uh, regimen is, is a difficult one to spray when there are trees nearby. Right now we can do it because we've got rice to the south, so if there's a north wind, which happens pretty regularly, then, then we can spray. Once that field gets planted to trees, our only option is spraying with a straight west wind which in this area almost never happens. I would say once every hundred years, maybe. <laughs> yeah, or you'll get it for about 15 minutes when it's switching from north wind to south wind. Either way, it's not practical to farm rice here when you are in a situation like that. So this is something we've been talking about a lot over the last uh, several months. What are we gonna do? Uh, so the, really the only options are to go to trees, um, which isn't an attractive option for our landlords here, or uh, go to, to drip tape and start farming row crops. So essentially, we have to change the way we're doing things to adapt to the changing surroundings. That's correct. And do we want to do that, or do we, would we prefer to continue to farm these fields to rice? Right now, I mean, we would prefer to continue to farm them to rice. You know, that's what the the core of our business is. We have a, a rice mill and a rice dryer that depend on, on this volume to stay in business. Um, you know, part of our family is also in the crop dusting business. They rely on on work on fields like like these. And so, yeah, we would prefer to keep farming them to rice. Well, there you have it, the situation of growing rice in the Sacramento Valley. It's not looking very pretty. What we just heard was an excerpt from an excellent podcast called Rice Radio. It's a production of Kurt Richter. And you heard Kurt talking with his cousin Joe, and they both farm in the Sacramento Valley. And it's an integrated uh, rice operation. They're very heavily into rice. 
And Kurt, tell us a little bit about Richter AG and all that they do in conjunction with rice. Uh, well, we uh, we farm several thousand acres of rice in the Calusa County and Butte County areas. Um, we also have ownership involvements with a rice drying and storage facility in Delavan, California, and a rice mill in Maxwell, California. So it's vertical integration. Not only are you growing rice, you're in the processing business as well. Exactly. So let's talk about the future of rice in the Sacramento Valley from what we just heard it's, it's not looking good, and herbicide restrictions, just part of the story. So let's talk a little bit about that for people who don't know how herbicides are applied to rice. It, it's all, I won't say all done, but primarily done via crop dusting, isn't it? It's done by a combination of uh, airplanes and helicopters, and there is uh, ground applications that are done as well. And uh, it's something that usually happens in the middle of the, the growth cycle in the midsummer months. Usually the month of June is when most of it's done. You know, they're, they're sprayed onto the rice plants, and uh, those materials are going to drift. As I talk about in the podcast, the drift that uh, was experienced maybe back in like the 90s or the 80s was never really a big deal because rice was pretty isolated in in, in and of itself. Uh, there weren't a lot of other crops intermingled within rice, but things have changed a lot since then. And now we've got a combination of row crops and especially tree presence, almonds and walnuts that have come into rice country that if our herbicides drift on those types of crops, they could be devastating to those crops and potentially wipe them out altogether. Is ground application of herbicides to bypass this problem, is that a viable option? It is, and it is uh, It is probably how more than half of the herbicides are applied. Um, it, it's very case-by-case -case basis, and a lot of it depends on what kind of stuff you have around you, what kind of equipment you have access to. Some people prefer the aerial application. There's some regions in, in the entire area that rice is grown that uh, probably are a little more air heavy because they can be, because there isn't a lot of other stuff around other than rice that could be damaged by the herbicides. Um, but in the Calusa County area, where we do most of our farming, it's mostly ground rigs because the aerial restrictions are becoming so severe due to um, these other crops' presence. Is it cost prohibitive, though, because of the price that you get for your rice? Well, it kind of depends. If you're, if you're doing the ground application yourself, then you are essentially paying yourself to make that application. But if you're hiring somebody from the outside, uh, it, you know, everybody has their opinion on, on it and everybody charges their different rates. So uh, I would say it's somewhat of a wash, but uh, some people believe you get better coverage with one and some people believe you get better coverage with the other. We've seen what's happened over the last 10, 20 years in the San Joaquin Valley, the nut rush walnuts, almonds, pistachios going inland, and not the greatest farmland either, uh, going into some pretty marginal areas in the San Joaquin Valley. And rice is grown on pretty marginal land. It's it's heavy clay. Obviously, it, it holds water. And yet there are former rice growers there who are switching to nut crops. Absolutely. Yeah. And initially it was happening in some of the soils that, that could allow for that type of thing, stuff that's grown along the river, um, you know, where the soil is a little sandier from, from years of flooding that would happen in those areas. Uh, but technology is catching up and um, really causing waves of change, um, be it tile drainage systems that are installed in the ground um, above where the trees are planted that helps draw the water down so that the roots aren't sitting there saturated, potentially hurting the tree. Um, there are soil amendments that can be added, gypsum, lime, compost, a lot of things like that that can change the soil structure in a way that allows those trees to thrive. And then, you know, 
uh, irrigation systems, very sophisticated irrigation systems that allow you to put out, you know, micro emitters of, um, so that water is very carefully uh, applied to, to these trees, uh, has allowed these trees to thrive in soils that they never would have been able to thrive in you know, 20 years ago. And just like in the San Joaquin Valley, I would imagine there's a lot of deep ripping going on in preparation for those orchards. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're essentially trying to change the composition of the soil so that it is suitable for a tree in a way that it wasn't before. Ripping is a big part of that, too. So trees going in, one reason for decreasing rice acreage, uh, the profits on, on trees are are still astronomical, but it really is a long-term investment. And you point out in your podcast on, on Rice Radio that it, it really does take more than a decade to really see profits from trees. It does. It does. So you have to think of it if you're going to be putting in an orchard as a long-term investment because you put in a, a juvenile tree, uh, it's not going to be producing anything for several years, yet you still have all the costs of keeping that tree alive, nourishing it, you know, helping it grow. Um, but then once the trees do come into production, the profit margins on those crops are highly, you know, significantly higher than, than a lot of other types of crops that are grown in the area. And that's what farmers are seeing happen and seeing their neighbors uh, have success with. And so people want to get in on the game and it's just caused a bit of a domino effect where fields that have been rice for uh, an exceptionally long time are now, you know, if your neighbor's growing it, say next door and successfully with trees, and that means you probably can too. And people are just, rice is dropping out and trees are going in at a pretty uh, incredible rate. The problem though, it's lean years until those profits come in. It is. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, I, one thing that I've seen a lot of farmers do is that they'll farm in the rows between the trees to try to generate a little bit of income while those trees are still coming into their productive years. Uh, so there's ways that people can do it. Water sales is another thing that people have done to generate a little bit of income um, on uh, ground that they intend to eventually put into trees. Ah, uh, yes. Water sales. Another reason for declining rice acreage in the Sacramento Valley. Because when you sell off your water, the land has to go fallow. Absolutely. I mean, we sold a little bit of water this year because the, the dollars that are being offered are just too hard to, to walk away from. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the districts around here are being very responsible with how they handle it because they're not going to allow the, the lure of those dollars to completely wipe out any of the crops that are being planted, you know, across the board 100%. So districts like Western Canal are putting a 20% cap on it. We will only sell 20% of the acres in our district so that it doesn't damage the industry uh, in a severe way. Uh, but the, the demand for water down south is high enough that the opportunities to make sales are there. And it is appearing to be something that will be more routine in the future could even be a yearly thing one thing you mentioned on the podcast that really struck me as very odd was that one of the requirements when you sell that water is that percentage of acreage that you own as far as the water goes has to be fallow in fact you can't grow even a cover crop it has to be bare soil which seems counterintuitive to prepare uh, protecting the soil it does. And I don't know who comes up with these policies, but uh, the requirement is barren ground. I mean, you say it can't grow a cover crop. You can't even allow weeds to grow there. So we're out there disking up weeds or spraying weeds to keep them from coming up. Um, because if if they, the inspectors who come by and check these fields to make sure you aren't trying to grow a crop, um, even though you sold your water, uh, if they find any kind of vegetation out there, even naturally occurring weeds, even naturally occurring weeds, that have environmental benefit, 
they still will not allow that and they will disqualify you and potentially dock your pay on your water sale. Wow. That just is so, like I said, counterintuitive to protecting the soil, which means uh, there are more dust storms coming to the Sacramento Valley. Potentially, yes. You know, and it would be nice if they could loosen those policies slightly, especially for weeds, like I said, that have environmental benefit. One big one of those is like smart weed. It's a, a weed that can grow in a, in a drier um, habitat like that or in a drier condition like that. Uh, and if that weed were allowed to stay alive and then that field gets flooded in the wintertime um, for habitat or for hunting, smart weed is a, a really big waterfowl food source. Um, but they're not allowing that food source to thrive because that's the rules of the of the water sale. Shrinking rice acreage also means less acreage for waterfowl. Last time I checked, ducks don't hang around in trees. They like wet fields. The uh, environmental impacts to the reduction of rice acreage uh, could be rather profound. It could. It could. You know, rice ground is uh, is surrogate wetland habitat. You know, the valley used to be all wetland uh, in this area where we do farm rice. And then, you know, as the area is settled and and ground is turned into towns and cities and, and developed for agriculture. Uh, those wetland acres obviously aren't there anymore, but rice ground uh, pretty much provides all of the environmental benefits of a wetland. Uh, so as far as a, a bird's point of view is concerned, there's really no difference. And so we're able to farm ground, make that ground productive to produce food, produce jobs, uh, produce income for the economy. And, you know, it's still beneficial to the birds in every way that they need it to be for you know, nesting or resting as they migrate or finding food sources. And you also point out in your podcast, it could be beneficial for migrating salmon. Absolutely. There's a lot of new science that's being worked on right now that's proving to be um, proving to be very beneficial to uh, salmon in the sense of uh, winter flooding of rice fields. And when you flood a rice field in the wintertime, uh, there's a lot that happens, including the uh, production of a lot of food that salmon eat things like zooplankton, things that I never knew existed in rice fields before, but there are literally zooplankton out in these rice fields that are developing. You've got scientists from UC Davis and from Trout Unlimited that are, are working on studies pertaining to this right now and then trying to track that food from rice fields back into the river when those rice fields are drained in the late winter, early spring, and we're basically injecting nutrient-rich, food-rich water back into the Sacramento River that salmon, wild salmon, can eat. The Richter family has been farming in the that area of the Sacramento Valley since the 1800s. It didn't start off as rice, though, did it? No, it didn't start off as rice. Uh, I, I, I don't know the history all that well, but I do believe there was some dairy um, aspect to it. Uh, we our, our relatives settled in the Maxwell area. Maxwell used to be a huge dairy area um, back in that period of time. And as the area changed and evolved um, and the farming practices, so too did we with it. Um, so now we are farming rice in, in what is almost an exclusively, well, used to almost be an exclusively rice area, but now it's becoming a blend of other things, rice, almonds, and walnuts. What is your family considering for the future, however? We have diversified in the last couple of years. We've gone in the row crop direction, um, but we haven't really taken that much rice out in favor of row crops. We're just acquiring ground that is really not suitable rice ground anyway and uh, farming row crops on that and that would be um, an example would be processing tomatoes and sunflowers um, so we've grown several acres of uh, those crops this year too 
The rice you grow, medium grain cal rose, premium short grain varieties, bring a good price on the export market. But with fewer acreage, I would think the demand would still be there. So that means the price goes up. But that's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah, and I, that's something I touch on on the podcast as well. Um, you know, you would think, okay, supply goes down, price goes up, everybody wins. But, um, you know, it's a competitive market out there. And if the price gets too high, some of those foreign markets will look to other products that they consider to be near enough to uh, the Calrose product that they can get at a much better price. Um, medium grain rice that's grown in the south, the U.S. south, that would be like Texas, Arkansas area, um, isn't quite the same product as what we produce here, but they can produce it much cheaper there due to uh, significantly less regulations that they have imposed on them. And uh, therefore, they can kind of swoop in and, and secure that market that we have priced out of the market. Uh, because our product became too expensive. So there's a there's a fine balance there um, between price and supply uh, that you know needs to be considered. Um, obviously, we as farmers would love to see the price go up. Um, we feel like it probably should be a little higher than what it is right now anyway, but the market's been so volatile. We're hoping that stabilizes and kind of becomes a little more normal over the next few years. But we will see uh, what, what happens, how many more acres come out and where the things go. Kurt Richter and his family been in the rice business for a long time in the Sacramento Valley, but as his podcast, Rice Radio, points out, times are a-changing. Kurt Richter, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thank you. World Ag Outlook Board Chair Seth Meyer says the latest crop report has interesting information about rice stocks. Some of the stock information implied a pretty substantial increase in domestic use, so we drew down our carry-out stocks for the 17-18 crop year a little bit. The report notes other developments with rice. Interestingly, we had two pretty big changes, which is we had an increase in consumption, which decreased stocks coming into 1819, but then we increased production. The decrease in stocks and the increase in production largely offset each other in the final balance sheet. It was a little bit over 3 million hundredweight, and we split that about two-thirds going to domestic consumption and one-third going to carry-out stocks. And because of those extra supplies, we did end up with additional supplies despite somewhat offsetting effects. And so we trimmed prices 20 cents to $11.70 for 2018-19. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. An oversupply of organic milk has hurt those in the business here in the Golden State. The California Farm Bureau recently talked to one such Northern California dairyman. I'm Ward Burroughs, and we are here in Northern Merced County on California Cloverleaf Farms, an organic dairy. Over the last couple of years, the organic dairy industries had some big, big challenges. We have a big oversupply of milk. Consequently, we have a lowering of prices. We have an exodus of some of our farmers. It has been very, very difficult. For instance, some in the organic dairy industry are starting to diversify. They're either selling their farms or they're trying to hold their farms and diversify into, into some other agriculture products. That's what we're going to do. So we're going to ratchet down our cow numbers. We're going to plant organic almonds on the, the very piece that we're standing on today. And that's all, that's a result of the economic conditions in the organic dairy industry today. The overall dairy picture here in California is down a bit. There were 1,392 dairies in California in 2016. In 2017, that number dropped to 1,331. 
As the September 30th deadline nears, House and Senate negotiators continue efforts to finalize a new five-year farm bill which lays out federal agricultural and food policy. A California Farm Bureau analyst says many parts of the bill will be important for California, such as reauthorization of conservation, trade promotion, as well as rural development programs. Both the House and Senate versions of the bill include language that prioritizes research into agricultural mechanization. The goal of Congressional Farm Bill Committee conferees is to have a new farm bill agreed upon and signed into law by the end of this month. That is when the existing farm bill expires. And based upon the comments of House and Senate Ag Committee members when they opened the farm bill conference after Labor Day, there would be much to focus on and consider in their deliberations to get a new legislation signed into law. We must agree to a bill that provides the much-needed certainty and predictability they deserve. There's much in the farm bill that is worth protecting, and there are some critical mission areas that need improving. We need to create and focus on ways to create jobs in rural communities. We're all here for the same reason, to deliver for the people who count on the programs within this bill. Senate Ag Committee Chair Pat Roberts, House Ag Committee Chair Mike Conaway, and ranking members in Congressional Agriculture Committees, Debbie Stabenow in the Senate, and Colin Peterson in the House with their respective viewpoints. Like previous Farm Bill deliberations, there are some issues of difference between House and Senate versions of the bill to be reconciled. Aspects of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program are one example. Yet lawmakers, as well as observers keeping a close eye on the process, are noting a positive tone to date. To those who say passing a farm bill in this environment is a daunting task, I say together we can get it done. The good news is that I've seen no disagreement that should prevent us from completing a strong farm bill and completing it on time. One thing we all agree on is the urgent need to pass a five-year farm bill. We have one goal, and that is to get this farm bill done. Farmers are counting on it. One possible situation, though, that may impact whether Congress passes a new farm bill by September 30th or not is concurrent deliberations on federal agency spending bills for fiscal year 2019. Like the farm bill, the current fiscal year is set to expire at September's end. And among those spending measures under consideration, the Agriculture Department's FY19 budget. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Stanislaus National Forest in Tuolumne County is among the many regions of California affected by wildfire this year. Standing near one scorched grove, Tuolumne County Farm Bureau President and Forester Ken Fleming told the California Farm Bureau News about salvage logging and what can be done with some of the smaller trees. Where we're standing right here, everything is pretty much dead. It's It's been totally burnt. I mean, even some of the ones with some green down here have been burnt so bad that they're 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 gonna die so uh, this timber is salvageable if we get it within two years and, and for the most part it, it will be it'll be good timber there's some legislation coming through to for thinning projects I think that'll so you don't have the year or two year uh, time to, to do a, a a seeker review to, for the THP. Smaller timber can't pay for its way out of the woods. Usually it gets ground up and shipped to a, a, a cogen plant where they make uh, electricity out of it. But it, it, the amount of money that they can pay, they can't, it doesn't pay enough to get that small stuff out of the woods. By the way, the acronym used by Fleming in that report, THP, stands for Timber Harvest Plan. If you think about it, soil is much more than just dirt. Step right up and gain. 
place upon this miraculous substance I hold in the palm of my hands. This little miracle can feed us, clothe us, give us clean, fresh water, and provide wildlife habitat for nature's critters. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the greatest this public service announcement was produced by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, which works to help ag producers understand how to maintain healthy soil. When you think about soil health, the same practices that help us as far as controlling erosion, reducing CO2 in the atmosphere through carbon sequestration, and helping address issues like water quality by controlling erosion and runoff are also the same practices that we want to do to increase fertilizer efficiency, reduce input costs, and over over time increase yields while controlling soil erosion. That was Clay Pope with USDA's Southern Climate Hub. He spoke recently at a soil health symposium in Palestine, Texas. I'm Stephanie Ho and in this week's Agriculture USA we'll look at soil health and the need to effectively communicate best practices to a wider audience. Presenters shared different ways to protect and improve soil health at a meeting in East Texas that brought together government officials, experts, and ag producers. So my topic today is cover crops, using cover crops as a tool to improve soil health. I do plant breeding on forage legumes, and we also do some work on forage grasses. Today I'm going to talk about best management practices for forage production and how those best management practices can impact our soil health. Those practices are going to include grazing management, soil fertility, weed and insect control, the speakers included Jim Johnson, soil and crop consultant for the Noble Foundation, and Gerald Smith, a professor at Texas A&M AgriLife Research Center. The last speaker was Texas A&M AgriLife Research Center associate professor Vanessa Olson. I think symposiums, meetings, conferences such as this are excellent, and they are critical to the dissemination of research information as well as best management practices. They also create an opportunity for networking, producers not only meeting professionals, and researchers, but also meeting each other and learning from others' experiences in agricultural production systems. Tamara Daniel is with the Association of Texas Soil and Water Conservation Districts, which helped NRCS organize the session. This allows us to bring in speakers that can focus on soil health needs in a particular locale, uh, really tailor it to their needs, bring in producers from the area that are already uh, kind of leading the way in, in soil health. The Noble Foundation's Johnson echoed how best practices for soil health need to be tailored to local conditions. It's not cookie cutter. You have to figure out what works for you on your operation. Everybody's operation is different. And so apply the principles to your operation and make them work for you. And of course, soil health practices need support from local farmers. We got to do something about it. And, and when I say we, I'm talking to the producers. And I don't mean that disrespectfully towards the NRCS guys and gals or the uh, soil and water conservation people. But producers, it's our responsibility to change. That was East Texas producer Jimmy Down, who challenged his fellow ag producers to steward their land in a way that takes soil health into consideration. This is serious, y'all. It's serious for the security and for the well-being of our country, our nation. I believe that with my whole heart. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing. I wouldn't take the risks that I've taken. I wouldn't subject myself to the unkind comments that I've got from neighbors. But it's part of it. It's just part of what's going to happen when you make a change and when you go against what 99% of producers out there are doing. Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Ecosystem Management Professor Richard Teague said 
says soil health makes clear financial sense. In our research, we have found the leading ranchers through North America, in fact, who have shown that by restoring their soil health and their vegetation, they have increased their profitability by substantial amounts. He adds that farmers who have had success are great examples to other farmers who still need to be persuaded. So people can talk to them and see what they do and learn from them because they don't learn just from us, they also learn from other farmers and they have confidence in results that are produced with other farmers. Or, as USDA's Clay Pope says, It all fits together. It's the one place where environmental issues and profitability and production agriculture kind of come together around the fire and sing kumbaya. For more information, go online to nrcs.usda.gov and search for soil under the topic headings. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Stephanie Ho at the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Crops that don't get much respect. Well, people don't often think about the importance of hay and forage crops, and that's a problem. That according to specialists who study those crops. They say alfalfa, grassy hay, and pasture crops contribute greatly to soil health, water quality, wildlife habitat, as well as other ecosystem benefits. California Farm Bureau talked to university specialists from California and New York who say they're worried the lack of recognition for forage crops could erode those crops' environmental and economic contributions. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.